0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning, church. I want to begin by saying that I am absolutely uh, elated for the great opportunity that's been granted to me again to not just worship with you on this lord's day but also to be able to lead us in worship as it relates to the preached word of god uh, let me say first to my brother greg who i know is watching um, i love you brother and thank you for this again opportunity to stand in your stead i don't take it lightly and for a man to leave his pulpit Uh, to another individual. Um, That's a great task that he'll have to answer for one day. So um, uh, I understand the great gravity that comes with this responsibility. And so again, I love you, brother, and thank you for, again, this opportunity, and I want to steward it uh, well. Can't promise you much this morning, uh, but what I will tell you is that uh, we're going to attempt something. And if we're going to accomplish it, we're going to have to lean and depend hardly upon uh, the grace of God and the Spirit of God to accomplish it and uh, what we should, uh, should try to accomplish this morning is that I want to lead us sort of in a posture and an attitude of heart um, that would, would convey to the Lord and sort of an attitude uh, to hear what the Lord would have to say to us from his word this morning. Um, we're going to take a fresh look at the old book um, and, and realize that again the Bible is not uh, what God has said. But my pastor mentor said something to me years ago that when the Bible is open, it is literally as if God is opening his mouth, right? And the word of God is not what God has said, but it is what God is saying, right? And so if we agree and, and, and say amen to that, then I think it behooves us uh, to sort of be in a heart's posture um, that would convey to the Lord that your servant uh, is ready to hear you, Lord. Um, and that is what our uh, desire and attempt will be to this morning. Very familiar passage today. We will be in Psalms number one, looking at the entirety of this psalm. And when you get uh, Psalms one and your copy of God's word, I want to give me, you to give me an outward uh, uh, display that you have found your place in God's word by resting upon your feet, as that days did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we will read our text then make our prayer, and then we will dive into our message. And I've chosen for a subject matter, happiness, the byproduct of godly pursuit. Psalm 1, beginning at verse number 1, the word of God declares, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Consequently, he should be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaves does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. However, the wicked are not so, but are like the shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, he says, will perish. Let us pray. Gracious God and heavenly Father of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, Lord, us again and another time that you have blessed us to gather on this blessed lord's day Uh, lord you have brought us to the most preeminent part of our gathering the time where we will unveil ourselves under the proclaimed word of god and it is my desire O lord that you would allow me to speak as of the oracles of god lord would you fix my heart and my mind firmly upon christ and guard me from saying anything that is not consistent with your eternal truth And I pray, Lord God, that you uh, would get the glory and that Christ would be high and lifted up in this message, oh God. And that your voice will be heard beyond my voice. And that you would do in the hearts of these, your people, that which you are only able to do. And I pray equally for them, God, that by your grace also that you would keep them free from distraction. Lord, I pray that you would allow their hearts to be fertile ground this morning as the seed of the word is proclaimed. And as your word tells us, as one plant, one water, but it is ultimately you that give the increase. God, would you give the increase today? Perhaps to one, it would be as the power of God into salvation that their eyes may see today like they've never seen before. And perhaps to another who have come to know you as Savior and Lord thus far. May this again, as I often say, would be more fuel on the fire that is already ablaze in our hearts for you that will drive us and motivate us to live more committed and devoted lives for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all of these blessings. Amen. You may be seated. Happiness, the byproduct of godly pursuit. I want to give you three key words to pay especially attention to this morning as it pertains to this message. Number one is the word blessed, the word counsel, and the word law. By way of introduction, the idea of happiness is a concept that us as human beings are absolutely consumed with. The pursuit of it consumes and characterizes our society and societies of the past. In a survey taken where over a hundred people was asked the question, what do you desire most out of life? The answers given were almost unanimously to be happy. We place great premium on happiness because there is something innate in us that longs for true satisfaction and true fulfillment. On December 31st at 1159, once the clock strikes 12, it is a cultural practice of us all, especially over here in the West, that we usually turn to those that are in our company. And what do we do? We wish each other. A happy new year. Men married their high school sweethearts and after 20 years of marriage and three head of children many of them leave their families abandoning them never to return because they say I just wasn't happy anymore. We believe that if we get the job we want, the car we want, the house we want, the raise and position we want, the scholarship we want, that we will be satisfied and happy. You see, the entrepreneur says, if I could just make a million dollars, I'll be satisfied and happy. That's only until he makes a million. We sing about happiness in our songs. We fantasize about it in our imaginations. And despite all this talk and fuss, about happiness and what should bring us happiness if we are true and we're honest about the matter. We as individuals, we as a people, we as a nation are yet still so unhappy. Well, the reason is because the world's prescription for happiness is a fallacy. You see, the world prescribes women Sex, drugs, and alcohol. It prescribes riotous living, money, and success. But these things can never gratify, but they can only, excuse me, they can never satisfy, but only bring temporary gratification, which is to say that no matter how much of these things we get, it can never fill that God sized hole that exists in the human heart. John D. Rockefeller. In the early 1900s was asked the question: How much will it take to satisfy you? We're talking about a man, if you know his biography. we're talking about a man who struck it huge in the oil industry. We're talking about a man that, upon his death in 1937, uh, had amassed an a numerous amount of wealth where his net worth in 1937 was some 336 billion dollars right? And that's that old money, right? That's when a nickel could get you equivalent to what $5 could get you. And this day, this man had amassed an enormous amount of wealth in 1937 upon his death, $36 billion. But in his life, in an interview, he was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, you have struck it huge in the oil industry. You have secured the financial stability for your family for generations and generations to come. Tell us, Mr. Rockefeller, how much Will it take to satisfy you? And the answer he gave was absolutely jaw-dropping. The answer he gave was more. And in his answer, it echoes the very sentiment of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14, where he says essentially that a life without God, hear me, people, a life without Christ, a life without God, it is all vanity. It is literally as if we are simply chasing after the wind. But might I suppose to you that there is something to be said regarding purpose in its relationship to true happiness. You see, as birds were created for the air and fish for the water, mankind was created for God. We were created to know Him and to know him, might I add, to know him is to love him. And to love him is to serve him. And in light of that great truth, what we must always remember, people, is that no matter what we have in this life, it is all conditional and with regard to threat. And this two-plus-year pandemic that we are currently in, still in, unfortunately, serves as a fresh and an undeniable reminder of this truth. Our health, our money, our loved ones, our jobs, our careers, our possessions. Listen, all of it can be gone just like that. It can all be gone in an instant. And this explains why happiness, hear me, It's like a dancer always dancing in and out of our lives, never constant and never permanent. You say, why so? It is because we have built our happiness upon the sand of the world's lies. And when, not if, but when, the waters of life rises, what does it do? It washes away our happiness. But as we reject the world's prescription for happiness and we turn to God and His Word and allow God to weigh in on the conversation, what we discover is that God has something to say concerning this business of happiness. And what He has to say is fundamentally opposed to this fallen world and its suggestions. And what we should learn today is that happiness is not acquired by seeking after happiness. But happiness is the byproduct of seeking something much higher and much nobler. Happiness is the byproduct of knowing God and pursuing righteousness and growing in holiness. And with that being said, I wanna draw your attention to our text. The psalmist says, blessed is the man. And I wanna stop right there. The word blessed in the Hebrew Uh, Is the Hebrew word asher, which means to be truly happy. It is literally translated as happy, happy. Now, as you know and would rightfully expect, that there is a vast difference between our American Western culture and the ancient Eastern Hebrew culture of biblical times. And so for an example, over here in the West, one of the Cultural practices that is pretty normal to us is that when we want to lay a bit of stress on a particular point or thought that we are seeking to try to convey, one of the things that we do over the West, sort of as a cultural norm, is that we sometimes raise our voice, right? And so if you could be a flower on the wall in my house, uh, you would see me from time to time employing this cultural practice when I'm in one of these heated uh, debates with my youngest son, Zayden, about. Who is the GOAT, Uh, right? That acronym uh, having to do with the greatest of all times as it relates to the game of basketball. And so as I'm from time to time having this debate with this young man who is hard-headed, I found myself having to employ this cultural practice and raise my voice to make my point stronger because he doesn't seem to get it that by no stretch of the imagination, is LeBron James a better basketball player than Michael Jeffrey Jordan? That's a good place to say amen. Now, if you know anything about basketball, you can say amen. It's okay, right? So when we're in this discussion, these discussions, I find myself sometimes having to raise my voice because the, the young man is—he just don't—he don't get it, right? If I'm sending an email, what we sometimes would do is maybe parentheses or brackets or we would use bold lettering all to draw a special emphasis on a particular point or word or phrase that we're seeking uh, to convey. Well in Jewish culture they had a way of accomplishing this in as well and what they would do is repeat themselves, right? And so in Matthew chapter number 23, for an example, we have what is often referred to as the seven woes of Jesus Christ, where our Lord is recorded and saying some seven times consecutively, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Also like in John chapter number 5 verse 24, where there our Lord is recorded and saying, truly, truly, I say unto you, whosoever hears my words and believe on him who hath sent me, has eternal life or like in John chapter number 6 verse 47 where again our Lord is recording and saying truly truly I say unto you whoever believes on me has eternal life so they will repeat themselves and this is the purpose the purpose was to remove all doubt while stressing certainty so as it pertains to our text this is happiness without a doubt This is happiness many times over. This is happiness, absolute, nonetheless, undisturbed and unperturbed. This is true happiness. Happy, happy is the man, notice he says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Major point number one for those who are taking notes. Major point number one, as it pertains to the happy man, Verse 1 speaks of his posture. The truly happy man possesses and maintains a posture that opposes sin and ungodliness. Let me give you two proof texts that also speak to the same biblical sentiment. In Psalms 97 verse 10, the word of God declares, you who love the Lord. Do I have anybody in here that love the Lord? He says, hate evil. In Proverbs chapter number 8 verse 13, the word of God declares, the fear of the Lord, he says, is to hate evil. So what we see from the onset is that the first lesson in instructing one into a life of true happiness involves three things. It involves loving God. Number two, it involves loving what God loves. And number three, it involves hating what God hates. The happy man is not neutral or indifferent concerning the moral issues of the day. But instead, he stands in opposition to whatever opposes God in his righteous standard. First, starting in his own life. Second of all, in his brother's and sister's lives in the faith. And thirdly, in the world at large. Number two, the second lesson that we see here is that happiness involves negatives restrictions and prohibitions And who can argue with this if you know anything about the word of god right but we see this in the book of beginnings in genesis chapter number one and genesis chapter number two it is there that our god is revealed on the pages of scripture as the sovereign creator of all things he creates a perfect world and within this perfect world that he creates He creates a perfect garden. Within this perfect garden, he places a perfect man and woman. They're in a perfect situation, right? I would even add this perfect situation they're in, they were happy. They were truly happy, yet with one prohibition, yet with one restriction. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So from the beginning, we see that true happiness involves not doing some things. See, the world says lawlessness and happiness go together. But the kingdom of God says, no, 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 no. Limitations and happiness truly goes together. And the negatives always make the point Stronger. Have you noticed that God could have told us in the Ten Commandments, he could have said, you who are married, honor your vows. He, he could have said it that way, but he didn't. He says, thou shall not commit adultery. You see, the negatives always make the point stronger. He could have told us, hey, be honest in all your dealings. Just tell the truth. No, but he didn't say that. He says, thou shall not lie and bear false witness. Now, the world hears this, the unregenerate man, the man that is not born again, hears this, and he hates it. He rejects the notion because in the fallen world's mind, happiness cannot involve restrictions. Because in the mind of the person that is unregenerate, this idea of fulfilled life or happiness and true life in their minds must involve me being able to do as I please, go as I please, experience life as I please, do everything that I want to do. As the world says, hey, if it feels good to you, do it. Follow your heart. Anything that involves restrictions and prohibitions, the unregenerate mind doesn't see that life as a life that is blessed. They don't see that life as merriment. They see that type of life as misery. But for us who are Christians, we must guard our hearts against the extreme on the other side. Because the moment we start to talk about restrictions and laws and prohibitions, there's another L word that usually follows close thereby, and it's legalism. But I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that when it's the Word of God, it's not legalism either clearly taught or expressly set down in the Word of God. Liberty is not lawlessness. Liberty is only realized in and with true boundaries. Hear me closely, right? It's just like us as parents. We don't have a problem with our kids running and flipping and jumping and having a great time outside as long as they stay in that fence. Why? Because we know outside that gate, there's something called a street that has cars coming up and down, right? So even as it pertains to the life that God has prescribed for his people, liberty is truly realized in boundaries. Get this. There is a vital union between God's blessings and the gifts that he bestows upon us and his law that he's also given to govern them in our lives. You think about our life. We have life. Life is a precious gift from God. But God hadn't left it up to us to figure out what our lives ought to look like. No, he's explicitly spoken to us from his word. And he says that our lives ought to be lived in honor of him. Under his sovereign rule and authority, all to his glory. This is the chief in the man, right? To love the Lord, to know him, and to enjoy him forever. All things to the glory of God. For us who have families, right? Families are a blessing. Husbands, wives, children. God hadn't left it up to us to figure out what that ought looked like. He tells husbands to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. He modeled it by laying down his life for his bride. We ought to live sacrificially for our wives. Wives ought to love and cherish and respect and submit unto their husbands as unto the Lord. And together they ought to what? Raise those precious children in the fear and in the admonition of the Lord. And those children ought to submit to the authority of their parents and honor their parents in the Lord, for this is right. God hadn't left it up to us to figure out what it ought to look like. You think about our bodies and our minds. As my grandmama used to say in the old black Baptist church, the Lord woke me up this morning, early this morning, clothed in my right mind with the activity of my limbs, right? The fact that nobody had to carry you to the restroom this morning. You could get up, go to the restroom, fix your breakfast. You was able to eat and digest your food with no problem. All of the things that we take for granted, it's a great blessing of the Lord. But listen, the Lord hadn't left it up to us to figure out what that ought to look like as it pertains to our minds and our bodies. Romans 12 says we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but ye be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So with every blessing that the Lord has given us, he's also given us his word that is to govern that which he's blessed us with. So back to our text. Notice he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the council. Now this word "counsel" simply means advice. But not just advice, but advice given in order to accomplish a specific task. And what is that task? That task is to undermine the truths of God's divine word. And so when the psalmist says that he walks not in the council, in other words, what he's saying is, is that the happy man uh, doesn't allow such advice to mold his or her thinking. See, the world says you don't need God to be happy. Those Christians are just weak-minded people who need a crutch or something to hold on to You don't need God to be happy. I'll tell you what you need in order to be happy. You're an athlete, work on your game, secure that division one scholarship. If you play basketball, hey, get drafted to the NBA, football, go to the NFL, secure that multi-million dollar contract and I guarantee you, you'll be happy. The world say you don't need God to be happy. Marry the woman of your dreams or the man of your dreams and I guarantee you, you'll be happy happy. The world says you don't need God to be happy. You an artist, a musician, hey, perfect your craft, get that production deal, that record deal, go on to sell millions of copies, and I guarantee you, you'll be happy. But it is all a lie, people. You see, millionaires commit suicide as well. Divorce is at an all-time high amongst the wealthy. Athletes and musicians self-medicate trying to escape their reality because their lives are so depressed and miserable. You see, successful millionaires get those phone calls, too, that their loved one just passed away. And they feel the pain and the gravity of that hurt, of that loss. They go to the doctor and get that bad news, too, from time to time that we see a mass and we believe it's cancerous. And at that moment, they realize that the $50 million that I got in the bank can't do me any good, right? (laughs) Athletes have their dreams shattered as well, having picked up a ball at five years old and for the next 15 years of their life, working hard, perfecting their craft, and sometimes even attaining their ultimate goal of making it to the Pinnacle of whatever choice of sport they played only after being at that point having a career-ending injury. And what a letdown. Hear me this morning. What a letdown having built your entire life upon what this world prescribes as a means of obtaining happiness only to have it slip through your fingers and to be gone forever. And this should communicate something very clear to us, that if we are to know true happiness, we better aspire for that which cannot be lost, we better aspire for that which cannot be taken, and we better aspire for that which can deliver on its promises. Verse number two, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law He meditates day and night. Major point number two is found in verse number two. This speaks of the happy man's pleasure. Verse one speaks to the happy man's posture. And verse two speaks of the happy man's pleasure. He loves the law of God and his love is evidence by his meditation upon it. In Psalms chapter number 119, verse 97, the word of God declares it this way. Oh, how I love your law. And he says, it is my meditation all the day. Implicit here is a love for the Bible. What we love, it is safe to say that we often think about. Now notice, the happy man moves from the negative he walks not, he stands not, and he sits not. He moves from the negative to the positive in verse 2, which is, he loves the law of God, and on his law, he does meditate day and night. Let me give you an example. I love my mother's macaroni and cheese, right? And I'm pretty, uh, I believe it's pretty, safe. yeah, Frank can, yeah, he can affirm that, uh, and I'm pretty sure here at Grace we got some fine cooks but I'm just gonna go and tell you that none of y'all can make macaroni and cheese like my mom and you say Zion you sound biased and I say you probably right right but see if you can follow this analogy and I don't get these calls as I used to but every now and then I get a call and say "Well, I made macaroni you need to come on by so okay I'll be by now hear me if I'm planning to have my fill of my mother's macaroni and cheese, I don't consume a supersized biggie meal from Wendy's before I get there. All right, follow me. Or I'll say it this way there's only two conditions under which I won't partake of my mother's macaroni and cheese. Either number one, I'm sick and I'm ill or number two, I'm filled with something else. Am I describing you this morning? The question on the floor this morning is, am I describing me this morning? That perhaps the reason why there is little to no desire for the things of God, the Word of God. Could it be that it seems like the Word of God when it's even read and preached, at one time it used to go in, but now it just seems to be such a task. Even in this hour, when the preaching of the gospel is going forward, you can't help for, for your mind to wander, thinking about what you're gonna do after you leave here. You're looking at your watch, when is this gonna be over so we can get back to life? Could it be that you're filled with the world's entertainment and leisure? filled with the world's movies, music, and ideologies. So much to the point that the word can't get in. There's little to no desire. Although body is here, mind and heart and affections are somewhere else. Hey, Corinthians 15, says it this way. Paul says, be not deceived, bad communication corrupts good manners. And I believe that in the immediate sense that does talk about truly having relationship in terms of relating uh, and hanging out with individuals whose values of life are vastly different from us. But I've come to also see that principally in this regard as well. That when we're filling our minds by watching certain programs and listening to certain music and reading certain novels, we're hanging out with those people. Don't think it's not affecting you. Come on, you know how it is. You read a, a, a novel, and, or you're watching a program, and certain characters die, and you become so invested in the character. You get sad, you cry, and it's like, oh, this, this ain't even real, this is fiction. But what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. It's been affecting you all the time, and you haven't realized it in a very deep way. so we must make sure we're guarding ourselves to make sure that what we're putting before our eye gate and in our ear gate and what we're saying out of our mouths these are the gateways to our hearts and we must make sure that we're not filled with so much of the world as citizens of the kingdom that God's Word and the things of God have little to no effect in bearing on our lives So he says that his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he does meditate day and night verse number 3 notice he says consequently he should be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaves does not wither and all that he does he says he prospers verse number 3 gives us major point number 3 This speaks of the happy man's picture. Verse 1 speaks of his posture. And verse 2, it speaks of his pleasure. And here in verse 3, this speaks of the happy man's picture. His picture is one of fruitfulness. Now, we know how important fruit is in the kingdom of God, right? John 15 verse 8, Jesus says, Herein is the Father glorified, not just that we bear fruit, but that we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. Let me give you three things that re- as it relates to the fruitfulness of the happy man. Number one, God ensures his planting. Colossians 1 verse 13. You know over there, the Apostle Paul writing to the believers at Colossae tells us that when you and I believed on Christ, God actually, in a very literal sense, took us out of one kingdom and he carried us over and placed us in another kingdom, namely the kingdom of his dear son, and it is here that he has firmly established us. He has firmly planted us. No tree plants itself rightly. And so as it pertains to the happy man's fruitfulness, God ensures his planting. But not just his planting, but also God ensures his productivity, in, in uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter number two, verse 13, it is there that Paul says, for it is God who is at work within us, giving us both the will and the ability to do of his good pleasure. So in actuality, what he's saying, is, it, it is God who gives us both the will, the desire, and the ability, the dunamas, the power, to do of his good pleasure. This is God's production. This is his program. And he ensures that we will produce because this is a work of God from start to finish who have begun a good work in us, and he promised to perform it until the day of his coming. His planning and his productivity, but thirdly, uh, God also ensures his preservation. uh, Excuse me, Jeremiah chapter number 17. Go over there with me real quick. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. I want to show you something. Jeremiah chapter number 17, verse 7 and 8. If you can't get there, quick, write it down. Notice the word says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Right? The prophet Jeremiah goes on to say, Consequently, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Now watch this. And does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You know why? Because God ensures his preservation. It doesn't matter the strong winds. It doesn't matter the drought. It doesn't matter the heat. The sovereign God is the one who preserves his preservation. And so, For us as Christians who have come to faith in Christ, we can rest assured upon this foundation that the God who has planted me, the same God who ensures my productivity in his kingdom, and no matter where my life and I found my life to be, on the mountaintop or in the valley low. Broken into a million pieces, God ensures that all that finds its way into my life, I can rest assured that it is a part of his divine plan to make me into the image of his dear son. Nothing enters my life until it first goes by the check desk of God and God signs off on it. And he's already told me that his thoughts and his intentions and his love toward me It's all good. Now, he didn't say that all feel good to me, but he says truly it's for my good. And to that, we can say yes and amen. Now, I promise it speeds up from here. Now, the psalmist will contrast the life of the happy man with the life of the unhappy happy man. You say, why do I call him the unhappy happy man? In Matthew chapter number 6, you don't have to go over there with me. Just lend me your hearing. In verse 22 and 23, it is here that Jesus is recording and singing this, that the eye, uh, he says, is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. Verse 23, he says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness. Hear me again. If the light in you is darkness. Jesus asks the question, how deep is that darkness? And so the reason I named him the unhappy, happy man is because he thinks he's happy. And as Jesus says, if the light that be in you is truly darkness, the question is, how dark is that darkness? You see, the man apart from Christ the drug dealer, the alcoholic, the adulterer, the scripper, those who are living riotous lives, partying, going as they please, doing it, they think they're happy. But at the end of that life, according to the testament of God's word, all of their plans and their intentions and their supposed happy life ends in destruction and ruin. All of the rappers, the gangster rappers who promote gang violence, misogyny sex and rebellion they think they're happy notice he says in verse number four however the wicked are not so let me give you a little Bible study you know what that phrase means in the Hebrew the wicked are not so this is what that means the wicked are not so in other words everything that he said concerning the blessed man in the previous three verses as it relates to the wicked The wicked are not so. Then he goes on to say, however, because the wicked's character and conduct is the the very opposite of the happy man, he says, consequently, he is like the shaft and shall be ultimately driven away. Now, I'm a city boy and I didn't know what a shaft was. So I Googled it. Thank God for big brother Google. Google. And I'm told that the shaft is the husk or the straw remove, is re, that which is removed when threshing. And so whenever the cereal or the grain is extracted while threshing, what is often left is the straw or the husk, which again, in the agrarian world, I'm told is not good for anything but to be burned, right? So he says the wicked are not so, but are like the shaft that consequently, when it is all said and done, He says, the wind drives away. In verse 5, he says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 5, this idea of him uh, not standing is the idea of him not standing fully acquitted as the righteousness of God on that day of judgment. Now, why is it important to make that distinction? Because the truth of the matter is we all will stand before God in judgment. For us who have come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, and might I add, He is not your Savior if He's not your Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that it's there at that beamer seat judgment that we all stand and have to give an account for the life that we've lived post-conversion as it relates to our time, our talent, and our treasure and how we've yielded ourselves to the kingdom of God and for His purposes and His glory. And as John Piper says, although that judgment won't be one that determines our eternal destiny, for that is forever settled in heaven, the moment we uh, believed on Jesus, I don't believe it's going to be a walk in the park. We're going to have to give an account for how we've lived our lives post-conversion. Right? That bema seat judgment comes from the ancient Olympian world when that athlete would step up on that platform to receive his wreath or his reward for how well he's performed. We'll all be there as Christians. But for the wicked, according to Revelations 20, they'll be standing at that great white throne judgment where there uh, no mercy is given, only fiery indignation and wrath for whosoever name was not found in the Lamb's book of life the great and the small, speaking of their social status, right? The, 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 the super elite, the politicians, the movie stars, the ones who have, you know, millions in the bank, to the most insignificant person that we would probably just walk by and not even paying attention to. He said, The great and the small, if their names were not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, they were cast into the lake of fire which is called the second death. Lastly, in verse 6, notice, he says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, he says, will perish. This idea of knowing the way of the righteous speaks to his divine covenant to attend and superintend regarding providing for them covenantally. This is covenantal language, right? Amos 3.2, when he speaks to Israel, he says, out of all the families on the face of the earth, you are the only ones that I've known. Well, God knew them all because he made them all. But what is he saying to Israel? Out of all of the families on the face of the earth, the Jezebites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, only one little nation had a covenant with God, namely the children of Israel. God uses this this language of knowing as a way of communicating his covenant with them. But then also in Matthew chapter number 7, have you also ever noticed that knowing God or being known of God is used synonymously with salvation? For Jesus says that not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only those that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many were saying unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we not prophesied in your name? And haven't we not cast out devils? And haven't not we worked many wonderful miracles in thy name? And then I will say unto them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Notice he didn't say, I knew you, but I forgot you. He says, I never knew you. So here we see being known of God is synonymous with true salvation. And so here in our last verse, he says, the Lord knows the righteous. He knows us covenantally, and he's entered into covenant with us promising us that he will provide, protect, and bring us into that glorious end. But the way of the wicked ultimately ends in ruin. Are you happy this morning? Let me just say this. If you don't know God, you're not. We seek for happiness in the creation and we seek for it in the creature. But it can only be found in the creator, God. Man looks for happiness in people, in places and in things but it is only found, hear me again, in God alone. In the life of the wicked, in my closing, self trumps God, earth trumps heaven, flesh trumps the spirit, sin trumps morality, wrong trumps right, lies trump truth, time trump eternity. Am, am, Am I talking about you? in the life of the wicked. He wants sex without boundaries. He wants marriage without God's definition of marriage. He wants heaven with no hell. He wants religion without holiness. And he wants Jesus without Luke 6 and 46. And you know what Jesus says in Luke 6 and 46? Why calleth me Lord, but you do not what I command you? you're in this place today perhaps this word has resonated with you in a way that you discern something is different today about what you've heard perhaps the Lord is tugging at your heart don't suppress that respond in faith At the service, I'll be at the back if there's any questions. Maybe you want to talk to me about what it means to be a believer, what it means to be saved, what it means to trust in Christ. I'll be glad to talk to you and pray with you. Let us bow our heads. Gracious God and Heavenly Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, we give you glory and praise for your eternal word that word that you promised will never return void but it always prospers and accomplishes your end where until you send it and father God we pray that you would again get glory for yourself through your eternal word God would you save sinners God would you bolster? more commitment and a deeper affection and deeper love for you and your kingdom that we may truly live both individually and collectively as salt and light in the midst of a dark and dying world. God, we have be so careful to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor because it's to you and you alone that deserves all praise. We thank you now because you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.